0: Hello, everyone. This is John Anersted with Bobby Darren and Richie Schneiderite. We are the team and just part of the team behind ScarletNation.com or the Rivals.com network. Richie and Bobby, this is our first time doing it with three people on the line here, and uh, we're going to do our best to not speak over one another. It's hard enough with just two of us. Richie, how you doing there? I'm good. The new guy on the podcast, and Bobby, of course, the editor of ScarletNation.com. Hello, Bobby. Hi, how you doing? Well, today we have a theme to our show. It's the Rutgers camps. Uh, and I say camps plural because it's not just one week of camps in this year and the past couple of years. It is a series of camps. And in fact, I was looking down across the country. It seems to be the, the norm right now with these kind of series of camps. Penn State has eight. Alabama has six. Rutgers has, well, depending what you count as a camp, uh, seven camps, some of them including uh, excluding the passing camp and some of them on the same day. Um, I guess different parts of campus, but we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, so I want to throw out my first question to the two of you and whoever would like to answer this one. Um, if you could just comment a little bit on the format of the Rutgers camps this year
1: you
2: want to take this one bobby or
1: sure well you know it's uh you know a lot of positionals early on uh guys work out uh, it's a traditional camp format guys will come they'll check in um you know they'll warm up they'll do a lot of individual drills um they'll break for lunch and then after lunch it's the big one-on-ones but throughout the course of the day it's a chance for the staff to go around and check out kids and if they see somebody that intrigues them somebody they like they'll take them and to do a private workout inside the bubble, so as much as everybody else is working out, it's kind of a chance for the coaches to go around and scout the the, the talent there, and that's how a lot of these new offers go out. That you know they'll they'll see a kid they like, they'll work them out, and and next thing you know, boom, they have the offer.
0: Richie, you've been to two sessions so far. Can you talk a little bit about just
2: what you've observed and what you think about how Chris Ash is running his camps? Well, going along with what Bobby said already, one of the biggest things that me and Sean and me or Bobby have noticed is they, the minute they see a good kid, they grab him, pull him in the bubble, and they just do the private workout with uh, the assistant coaches or, or any other assistants.
0: All right. And so how frequently is that happening?
2: Um, Before lunch, you probably see about five to eight kids. And after lunch, you see them like I'll tone it down a little bit and go to like two or three of their top targets that day.
0: And I guess the fact that they have several different camps spread across different weekends and the fact that the talent is dispersed, which is something I think some people thought might be a negative because you like to hear about so many top prospects being on campus at the same time. But if they are dispersed across several different days, maybe that's a good thing so the, camp, so the coaches have an opportunity to have those one-on-one sessions with
1: more players um, and spend more quality time with them. Yeah, you know, John, that's a dynamic change that's been, uh, you know, very prevalent in the recent camping, uh, season. As you know from, from attending them for years, it's just a different format altogether. We'll speak on that a little more later, but it, it generally uh, is spread out a lot more. There's just a lot more camps in general for kids to go to. And, and some kids who have the big offers by this time don't really need to camp. They just kind of walk around and get the uh, red carpet treatment, so to speak.
0: You know, if you go back a few years and I always think about the Shiano years. And so they had those camps where there were, I don't know, it seemed like there were a thousand kids on the field spanning little kids all the way through high school. And one comment I often heard from coaches and even some of the players was that they never got the time with the staff that they wanted to get. So you'd look across the field and you could always tell where the top guys were because that's where you'd have Greg Shiano on a golf cart and Often it was where the Florida kids were. They'd come up and they get all the attention during that time period. But if you were a kid who showed up and maybe you were a lesser known kid, they didn't put you on that main field. You might have been out on one of the periphery areas. It was hard to get their attention. Not impossible because it happened. You know, if you really looked the part, they would find a way to get to you. But uh, if you were somebody who was unknown heading into the camp, it was difficult. Bobby, did you notice that?
1: Yes, and it's funny you bring that up. I wanted to uh, bring bring up a topic to show you how much it's changed. I think uh, you remember we were there one year, and um, they work out a lot of Florida kids together. They used to put black jerseys on them. That's how they could identify them. Well, there was another kid with them, and – um I said, that kid's very intriguing. You know, he's moving well, he's fast, he's athletic. So I went up and uh, started talking to him, and his dad was there. It turned out to be Devin Fuller, who was a sophomore at the time and had zero offers. You know, the coaches weren't all over him. Um, I think it was a a case of talent being identified a little bit later on – during that time and you know since then I hit it off with him and and his first offer didn't come till a few months later and as you know he became a you know four-star prospect had offers from everywhere but as a sophomore he was at that camp pretty much an unknown
0: we have a question from Scarlet Forever, who is one of the message board users on the round table, which is our premium message board. And he said, Is it just me or is the talent level way down at RU camps compared to previous years? Do they rely on the seven on seven tournament, which we haven't even spoken about yet, by the way? But do they rely on the seven on
2: seven tournament to draw talent to the campus? Uh, Richie, what do you think about that? Uh the, I mean there's talent there. You could tell like some you could tell basically right away which kid is like gonna pop to you right away and then um there's like, uh, who was it this week? Kevin Brennan showed up. Paul Woods showed up to work out. Um, Zahir Lacewell actually worked out for a little bit in one-on-ones. The talent's there, I'm pretty sure. It's
0: just spread out a little bit more. Yeah,
2: there's just so many kids to these camps. I think they had numbers going up to 700 this past weekend. Is there anyone there that raised their stock in your eyes this week? In my eyes, personally, Kevin Brennan looks the part of a strong safety like right off the bat. He was working out with Baker a little bit one-on-one, and he just has the skill set. The only thing I kind of was a little disappointed by, he didn't go one-on-ones with anybody.
0: Well, I'm talk- later on in this podcast, I'm going to play an interview I did earlier this evening with Rivals.com national recruiting analyst Mike Farrell. And one of the topics he talked about was just how these camps are getting younger and younger because the kids are getting their offers earlier and earlier. And it's not really necessary for many of them to come to a one-day camp Once they're a junior and definitely not heading into their senior year for most of them or most of the top kids, that is. Uh, Have you noticed a youth movement, Bobby? over the past couple of years in terms of who's attending the camps and who's getting the attention from the staff.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, that goes back to what I just said about Devin Fuller, you know, he was a sophomore and, and nobody knew about him. Now you have kids in the eighth grade. I think somebody told us at the camp that Florida Atlantic offered a seventh grade kid. I wouldn't even know how to scout seventh grade. You know, it just seems a little strange, but anyway um, you really are seeing um, offers go out way earlier. Um, And and it's really just a chance for staffs to get their foot in the door. Kids are committing earlier. You're seeing these earlier signing periods. Everything is just getting artificially pushed up. So to get it, to get in with some of these prospects, you have to give out early offers. Even if, you know, that prospect doesn't amount to a four star kid, just to get your foot in the door, sometimes you have to offer when all these other regional schools that you're competing with also send out offers.
0: Bobby, is there anyone that you have in mind that's really made a name for themselves on the camp circuit, either at the Rivals camp series that we attended a few weeks back or the Rutgers camp?
1: Hmm. Uh, I think I'm going to defer till after this week to say that one, because this week is going to be a lot more talent there. Um The rivals camp was kind of a bunch of guys that we knew, um, you know, who they were. So it it wasn't like a guy that I spotted, you know, in years past, like a Devin Fuller that we spotted. I think that's a case of some kids really just, um, you know, making a name for themselves earlier uh, as opposed to later. And this one's going out to the two of you, whoever wants to grab it. Obviously,
0: Rutgers coming off a down season, they have to find a way to identify and get commitments from players. How do camps like this play into that relative to other programs out there, some of those top programs whose names might sell themselves? Do you see this as being a more necessary component to Rucker's overall recruiting strategy?
1: Well, I think it is definitely necessary because, you know, Ohio State camps. You have to go there to solidify your offer sometimes, not just earn an offer. But Ohio State was, you know, former national champion, so they can afford to do that. Rutgers has to kind of find those diamonds in the rough at these camps. As you saw last year with Jayone Duggan, um, you know, more offers have gone out this year. A guy like Deion Jennings, you know, Jordan Mosley last week. So they're trying to identify that talent and, and find some guys for this class. You know, only three commits. It, it's time to get the ball rolling. Well, let's talk about one of those commits, because
0: hear Lacewell, who was at the camp, if I remember correctly, he committed yesterday to the Scarlet
2: Knights. Richie, can you tell me a little bit about him? Overall, athletic freak right off the bat. He, um, he did pretty well in the one-on-one drills as a wide receiver, but me and Bobby and everyone else there pretty much just all agreed that he, his future is at linebacker. He looks the part, put a couple pounds on him, and he'll do the job. Can you
0: tell me a little bit about his recruiting story so far? And first of all, just let's go back a little bit. Where is he from? Uh, what type of program does he play for? And how did he get to this point where he commits to Rutgers?
2: Uh, Lacewell kind of started out. I didn't, he didn't have many offers, to be honest, from what I looked at. he um, His tape's pretty explosive. I honestly, me and Bobby were debating this before, actually. Bobby has him as a top 10 player in New Jersey, if I recall. I yeah, probably put him at number five in Jersey. I have him a little bit lower at like, number like nine, 10. But uh, he doesn't have many offers, but his tape speaks for itself. He's fast, he's quick, and he just plays that linebacker role perfectly.
0: And he's from an area that's been pretty good to Rutgers over the past few years.
2: Yeah, having Tim Barrow, having Lacewell, and now grad transfer running back Gus Edwards. It's, I was talking to the coach the other day. He actually um, speaks very highly of Rutgers, and especially Coach uh, Coach Bush.
0: All right. Well... Looking, spanning the message boards a little bit more, I see a post by RU Bird, and he's asking about the football captains. And Bobby responded to that. Bobby, I'm just going to read your response and then turn it over to you and see if you can comment a little bit more on it. So here's what you said. For football, Dorian Miller, Damon Mitchell on offense. On defense, you'd say Sebastian Joseph is the only lock. If the staff opts to go on more than one captain on defense, I'd say it could be a race between Darnell Davis, Deontay Roberts, and Saquon Hampton. Bobby reflecting on what you said there is there anything else you'd like to add to that
1: uh, you know it's not a class that's laden uh, with seniors so you might find that fourth year junior like a Saquon Hampton or or a true junior like Deontay Roberts who Chris Ash has spoken very very highly of this year they could step into that role and you know I've seen years where there's only a handful of captains and there's you know a couple more other years uh, it's just a product of uh, of what uh, Chris Ash feels like is best for the team um And like I said, it's not a class that's really heavy in seniors. Uh, Damon Mitchell will probably get a captain's role, and he just got here in uh, January. So, you know, that speaks to some of the youth on both sides of the ball, which is promising as well. I would say it's a little bit of a concern from my perspective, only then that
0: we were only talking a couple years ago when Kyle Flood was in charge that what the team really needed was some senior leadership, some people who are going to make sure everyone stays in line. You see that still being. and I guess you, you responded. And that's what you said before. But I guess that could still
1: be an issue moving forward. What was that coach's name? You said Flood. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about him. Um, no, but I think one of his problems was he relied on the senior se- senior leadership too much in the beginning. That first year he came in, that defense was practically all seniors. They there wasn't really much of a need to do anything with that defense. Uh, you know, they kind of captained the team themselves. Um, but I think part of the problem was uh, Flood. Be- Became reliant upon that and, you know, entrusted too much, um, leadership roles with his seniors and, and didn't take enough of as a coach. That's a story for another time. But, um, you know, I think you can only expect so much out of those guys, you know, they'll, they'll help lead the team. That was a special bunch, that defense at 2012. But, you know, I, this year, I think, you know, there might not be as many senior leaders, but you're seeing guys grow into leadership roles and, and cultivating that leadership is going to be important for the future. Have you seen anything in
0: particular that gives you hope in terms of what the staff is doing to cultivate leaders? You've seen what Shiano did. You've seen what Kyle Flood did. Is there any type of different rituals, processes, uh, anything going on within the program that makes you say, hey, they're moving in the right direction? You know, it's different
1: because Shiano, you know, entrusted guys to be leaders, but he also had his hand in everything. He liked to micromanage a little too much. Then you had Kyle Flood, who just kind of took a hands off approach, so to speak, and, and let these guys kind of manage themselves. Now you have Chris Ash taking a different approach in his Champions Club. He's established it's, you know, rewards for the players. He does the knighting with the black stripe. So he's taking an entirely different approach to leadership. I, you know, it's a little too early to see if his master plan really works out, but it's. It is indeed different, and I think that reward and that competition is something new. Everything's a competition with this team, so you know the, the belief on that is that it'll make guys better so uh, you know like I said, it remains to be seen how it's going to turn out, but so far it's 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 looking different than what I've seen in the past two regimes. yeah, I recall watching the Snapchat
0: videos last year, and the fans on the message board enjoyed doing that too because those were those little peaks into the day and the day to day practices the rituals. That showed that it was a it was a competitive atmosphere, but it was also a fun atmosphere,
1: yeah, and I think that's one of the things that, that is starting to excite fans about it you're getting that inside look at that competition. The players like it too, I mean, you know they have competition for just about everything, and you know being an athlete at that level, you know who really doesn't like to compete so i think it's a good thing for the program
0: well, we're going to ask you guys to look into your crystal ball a little bit at this upcoming fall camp. and Bobby, you've seen many of them in years past. A user on the message board named, oh my gosh, I'm going to kill this name, Jay Basterica. He said, how do you think the 2017 fall camp will differ from last year in terms of expectations, player leadership, coaching attitude?" So just heading right into this fall camp, do you see anything just right off the bat that's going to be new, improved, different, not only under Chris Ash, but obviously under new offensive coordinator, Jerry Kill.
1: You know, you hit the nail on the head right there. This is every year. It's a new offensive coordinator. And there's never been one with the resume that Jerry Kill has. So I'm interested to see what he does with the offense. He has more weapons than Drew Meringer had last year. So uh, it, it'll be curious to see how, how he tailors the offense, I think this is uh one of the camps where I'm really looking forward to see what the offense looks like because you have a former big Ten coach of the year uh manning the offense, you know so he's he should do well in that role and, and especially compared to some of his predecessors, I guess also just when you talk
0: about the leadership and the coaching. One year in, they have more experience. There's a, a little bit of a sense of here's what we do in the program. Here's how we're going to do it moving forward. You would think that the players, there isn't that same learning curve that they had in the past. And some of the things that were brand new to them last year are going to be second nature, obviously, except for the offense, which will be changing yet again. But you, that has to be something that they're going to lean on this year, that, that familiarity. And it's going to be something that they'll be able to build upon.
1: You would think. I mean, you know, the continuity is there. The familiarization is there. Uh You have guys more acclimated to their roles, and you have more playmakers. Let's face it, you know, an offense is only good as, as your best playmakers. And, and last year, there was virtually none out there after Janari and Grant got hurt. So that's going to be a big difference.
0: Richie, I know this is your first time on the podcast, and you kind of leaned a little bit more on Bobby. So I'm going to end the sequence with the two of you by throwing a big question at you. I did not prepare you for this one, oh, but if you're looking into your crystal ball, how do you see recruiting finishing up for Rutgers in the, I guess, in the spring season and heading into the fall?
2: Uh, one thing I've been telling Bobby ever since the start of this class, it's going to be majority out of state kids. It's just, I don't know what it is with the vibe of New Jersey kids. It just doesn't seem like they're interested but it's gonna, they're hitting New York pretty hard. They're hitting California pretty hard. There's. I actually just posted on the message board about 10 minutes ago about a Indiana defensive end that's coming to visit. They're hitting up Ohio. They're hitting up every state possible to find talent.
0: And possibly not a bad idea this year considering New Jersey is not as strong as it's been in some of the other recent years, correct? Yeah, 100%. All right. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank the two of you for coming on. And I'm going to close out today's podcast by just going to Mike Farrell. He is our national recruiting analyst for Rivals.com. I called him earlier today and just asked him some of the same questions I asked the two of you. And I just want to get his sense on where he sees these camps, these uh, the school camps going nationally, and also how it pertains to Ruckers. And I thought he had some pretty good insight into the Scarlet Knights. So with no further ado, Mike Farrell. Mike Farrell, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I just have a few quick questions for you. This is our camp episode. We're just talking about the Rutgers camps and camps around the country, dipping into some combine talk and things of that nature. Um, I have noticed, and it's just maybe I don't know if this is just a Rutgers thing, but the nature of the Rutgers camps have changed in recent years. I remember not so far back, it was just, if I recall, it was a week of camps, and you had little kids up through high school kids at the same camp. They were all staying on campus for the whole week. And then you started hearing about things like big man camps and um other the specialist camps. I looked at the Rutgers site, and I believe there's seven camps listed, including the passing camp. I was over on Penn State, and I think I saw eight camps, Alabama six camps. Can you comment a little bit about the direction you see these college camps going nowadays?
3: Well, they're more specialized because you want to be able to spend more time with kids. You know, it's not as much of a necessity um, for programs to make these moneymakers. I mean, they're obviously still moneymakers, but the days of the, you know, three massive sessions with, you know, 3,000 kids at each session, um, you know, where you're just reeling in a lot of money, you know, for your football program and and for your university – those have gone away, not entirely. I mean, it's important obviously to to make money off of these camps and and nobody wants to hear that. Everybody, you know, feels that, oh geez, all camps should be free and these kids should get an opportunity to show themselves. It's a business. Um, but what's happened and changed is that, you know, the coaches they started doing more specialized one day camps out of their say four day session number two. They would have one day where you know a lot of the top kids would come in, and they knew those kids weren't going to go for four full days, so they bring them in for one day, spend a lot of time with them that one particular day, um, and and it's morphed from there into shorter, smaller, more specialized positional camps, so that you can spend more time with the kids that you're, you you really want to talk to and 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 coach up, um, and especially now that you're recruiting younger kids, you know we just had a fifth grader get offered. Yesterday, which is ridiculous. Uh, but, you know, when you're offering younger kids and, and scouting kids at a younger age, you need to have that specialized ability where you're not just looking at 3,000 kids running through drills. It has to be much more refined. And I think that's what you're saying.
0: That age issue that you brought up is something that we've discussed on the podcast and as well as the message board because it seems like these kids are getting the offers early and earlier. I didn't even hear about the fifth grade kid. That is nuts. And I have you seen that change in terms of just the number of younger kids who are coming through the camps
3: and the amount of time that the
0: colleges are spending with them?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, the recruiting landscape shifted uh probably about 10 years ago, you know, to a lot more earlier offers and it's just gotten worse and worse and then the NCAA and in their infinite wisdom decided that oh, we'll fix this. Let's let's push it back and and make written offers available. Um, heading into a kid's senior year rather than September 1st of his junior year and and that just had the opposite effect it made things even worse so now you know what you've got is you've got offers being handed out like candy on Halloween it doesn't matter you can offer a kid uh, you can wiggle your way out of it Um, you've got five or six years of development for say an 8th grader or a 7th grader if you want to offer them or you know especially you know three years to, to figure out whether you want to honor an offer for a ninth grader, even if he commits, um, there, there's nothing binding about it. So what the NCAA should have done is they should have made written offers available September 1st of your freshman year. So then all those kids that are getting those early offers would look in their mailbox, um, you know, and, and see there's no written offer there. And they would know what's real and what's not. But right now, the landscape is just, you know, it's the Wild West. You see some schools out there. I remember a couple of years ago. Under Charlie Strong, I think Louisville offered like 700 kids uh, in, in like one spring uh, over a three-month period. It's just you don't know what's true and what's not when it comes to offers. So um, I, I think it's it's one of those things where there's no there's no real risk to to, to offering a kid early, and you always want to be first. So why not throw an offer at him if it's pretty good?
0: If you were, um, the Rutgers camp, I mean, excuse me, the Rutgers staff right now, and you know where they are right now in terms of the pecking order of college football and where they stand in the Big Ten and it's a building program, young coaching staff. How would you approach the camp season, the combine season, this whole evaluation period? Is it a different approach than per se, like, you know, a Penn State or something like that?
3: Yeah, I mean, if you're Rutgers and, and you're coming off a you know a rough season, you got a new coach who's you know got an aggressive young staff. But you mentioned the pecking order. I mean, you're in the hardest division in college football, in my opinion, including the SEC West. Um, and you're just trying to build from the ground up. I, I think you have to you have to be smart. You know, you, you have to obviously offer you know the in-state kids that that have 40 offers, and you have to offer some of those kids in Big Ten country or in Maryland or some of the states that you recruit well um you have to you know try to stay in there with the big name kids with with multiple offers but you really have to do a great job scouting um you have to find kids that maybe are under the radar maybe find some kids that develop um and emerge during their senior year and that changes your strategy you know you you want to get your offers out early you want to fill up your class early if you can so that you're not scrambling by the end of the process. But the way to find those guys, um, you know, is to be patient and wait. So it's a very difficult process for for Coach Ash and and his staff, I think, because, you know, Penn State has to be a little bit more picky. They're they're the reigning Big Ten champs. Ohio State and Michigan have always had to be uh, very picky about who they offer. Um, I think Rutgers has to be picky in a different way. I think they have to find some kids that – Maybe you're under the radar, and other, other schools aren't ready to go on and, and develop those guys. And, you know, it's not really much different from when Shiano took over. Um, you know, he had the Florida ties, you know, which was a little different. But, you know, you, you find some diamonds in the rough. You, you hope to find the Muhammad Sanu that, you know, a lot of people are overlooking and turns out to be a star for you.
0: I, I see that being a big opportunity for these camps, perhaps in Ohio State and Penn State. Doesn't have to really mind the talent there as much as Rutgers does, but if Rutgers really does their homework and spends the time with the players, they might find that next Mohamed Sanu.
3: Yeah, and then the problem now though is there's so many copycat offers. You know, the the, the next Mohamed Sanu could be offered, and then you know by the end of the process he could have 15 more offers. Um, and I don't think that was the case when he came out. I, I know he had other offers, but uh, I think nowadays you see much more copycat offers going on out there, many more copycat offers. Now, the good thing is you've got the early signing period. Um, and I think that's a good thing for Rutgers, you know, because if you've got a kid that you've found and you've worked on and you, you've loved up the most, uh, and, and then, you know, we've seen it with Penn State. Penn State has done this to, to Rutgers a few different times over over the years where, you know, in January, they tap a kid on the shoulder and say, hey, you know, we we really want you. We love you. I'm sorry we didn't offer so long ago, uh, which is all untrue, you know, they just they whiffed on their top targets at a specific position and tapped a kid on the shoulder and said, Do you want to play in front of 107,000 people Penn State, you know, uh, and, and Whiteout and all that? And and Rutgers would end up losing kids like that in January. Now you can get them signed in December, uh, and it doesn't matter if somebody has them on their B list or, you know, discovers them late, they're wrapped up. So I think an early signing period is something. That's going to help even, you know, even the field a little bit. But if you find them in the summer, someone else is going to notice you offered them and they're going to scout them his first three games of his senior year and and then they're going to come after him if they like them. So there are no secrets anymore. I mean, you you and I have been doing this long enough where years and years ago, there were secrets. There were kids that nobody knew about that were kept under the radar by schools. It's absolutely impossible to do that now.
0: Well, Mike, thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining us on the podcast. All right. No problem. Well, there you have it, folks. This is our third episode of the Scarlet Nation podcast. We are done for the evening, but I want to thank Richie Schneiderite, one of our newest members of the Scarlet Nation community, our... He is a great recruiting analyst for us. He gets out there, gets the scoop for you all the time, posted on the Roundtable message board, as well as articles on the front page of the site. And, of course, Bobby Darren, who is the editor of the website, and the, the gentleman you just heard from, Mike Farrell, who is one of the uh, most respected, longtime followers of the recruiting game in the country. Of course, if you are not a member of scarletnation.com, please come by the website. We have many free articles as well as premium articles. We have a free message board, which is the largest watering hole for Rutgers fans on the internet. And we also have a premium message board called the Roundtable, which is our smaller, more intimate discussion where you get to interact with our staff, ask questions, get the inside scoop on everything that we know. So for everyone at scarletnation.com, I hope you have a great week.